This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. Courtney, we are back after another brief hiatus. Yes. Hello. Welcome back. What's going on? Oh, you know, just um, juggling stuff. <laughs> um, pretty close to finishing my PhD now. So. Yeah, last yeah. few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Last few weeks editing and... Adding those last minute, plugging those last minute holes, yep. you know, mm-hmm. in the in what you're saying, and whatever. <laughs> so hopefully, I won't uh, lose too much more sleep over it. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. should be good. Yeah, um, but yeah, refreshingly, we managed to get a guest on to have a chat about drugs. Yes. to help alleviate stress. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> very um, uh, common common drug as well, particularly for stress and anxiety and yeah. all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you know a lot of people who use it. I certainly do. Yeah, it's pretty um, common. Yeah, so we have for you today uh, Leah Roberts. Uh, she's a new PhD student, so she's just she's uh, completed her first six months and um, in the PhD process, first six months is dedicated to creating your proposal and then after that, once it's accepted, is when you can start your research. research. So she's just finished her, um, her first six months um, and has some very interesting views on uh, or understands the, the context around drug policy um, and uh, medicinal cannabis. Yeah, so yeah, really interesting chat. Um, where you'll hear that Leah draws on some experience from overseas as well as um, living here in Perth. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I guess we won't give too much away because we want you to listen <laughs> from, and hear what Leah has to say. But yeah, I think people will enjoy the conversation. Yeah, so have a listen and enjoy. <laughs> Great pleasure to welcome Leah Roberts to the studio. Oh, thank you for the welcome. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, great to get you on. Um, yeah, so we're going to have a chat about drugs today, primarily. Well, hey, yes, um, the research of drugs. Yeah, the research of drugs. Um, but before we get there, we usually get guests just to give us a bit of background as to how they've got to where they've got and what journey they've taken to get there. So if you want to just let us know, education, work, that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I've had a bit of a interesting path to research. I didn't really follow the traditional route. So I started my undergrad back in 2014, so a while now, but in political science and international relations and communications and new media, which has always been such a mouthful to get through. Mm -hmm. So I did that degree and I spent actually most of it on exchanges. So I spent two years overseas during my undergrad, which was for one year, one university exchange, and then another six-month university exchange, which was fantastic. And finished that degree up and then I was a journalist for about two years working for like a local newspaper which was fantastic and then I moved to working for communications for a local government and then the pandemic hit so I had all these great plans of what my next role was going to be it was all ready to go and then yes uh my life took a turn as everyone else did in March 2020 and I'd had a few friends of mine be like Leah you've mentioned research for so long that you wanted to do it why don't you why don't you see if you can do some and then I thought well pandemic I can't go out I might as well just see if there's any opportunities and then I got in contact with uh, Katie Atwell from in political science 
and she was doing some work with COVID-19 vaccine policy and attitudes and through working with her on a volunteer base, I started my honours and I was working in that field for a year and then continued to work as a research officer. And after during that time, I was like, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying research. So then I looked into doing my PhD. So now I've just begun my PhD at the School of Population and Global Health. And I'm just about six months in. So it's uh, I'm new. I'm still very new to the PhD world, but enjoying it. Mm. Awesome. And what was the initial draw into communications and journalism? I, I think I spent a lot of time watching the 7.30 report with my family nice. and watching uh, like Lee Sales and all the interviews. And I just thought, oh, that would be great because I've always loved politics and I've always been very interested in policy. And then I also love talking to people. So I thought it was a really nice way of combining it. And then I just got very lucky to get a journalism job, especially when I didn't study journalism. I wasn't, I was I think the only one in my company of journalists who didn't do a pure journalism degree. But I actually mm-hmm. found that very helpful because I had doing the undergrads here, you do, I did so many different units over such a variety of subjects, which helped me, Mm. I think, when you had to write about absolutely everything. Mm. So it was, Mm. it was a fun opportunity, but I like research because I get, I could get more in depth. I think that was one of my things I missed in journalism was, it was such a quick turner and you had these really fast deadlines. I wanted to go really in depth with stories and ideas and you just don't have the time to do that. So research has kind of been that way of, I can do Interviews, which are different, obviously research interviews and journalism interviews are different, but I could still talk to people, learn things, but I could go more in depth and really problem solve. So it was a nice way of kind of combining Mm. those interests. Yeah, research is so diverse across different areas, whether it be academic or journalism or buying a car or (laughs) like getting some advice on medical conditions or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like we all do it, but obviously... Academic research is sort of trained to think a certain way. It's a systematic way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, that's the big difference and that's what I kind of struggled with originally is I wanted to, you know, um, change the world and had all these great <laughs> ideas. And what you, what you start to realise is it's just very incremental, very small, lots of little bits add up to a, a slightly bigger bit over time. Um, and I, you probably found that. So Katie is a previous guest on the episode actually yes. a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the listeners will... Hopefully all of the listeners will know who she is. Um, But, yeah, do you want to talk a bit about the work you did with Katie? Because that was quite an interesting area. It was. So it was all about exploring. It's under the project called Coronavax, and it was all about exploring the attitudes and beliefs of people towards the COVID-19 vaccine. So I was originally, for my honours project, I was interviewing young people, so 18 to 29, understanding what their views on the pandemic were, the vaccines, government responses, but also what communication they would have liked to have seen because this was during halfway through 2020 to midway through 2021. So it was really in-depth. And then through that research, we also talked to parents with children. I worked with the kids with it was like the parents of kids' age. Oh, I think it was to more like uh, 5 to 18. Mm-hmm. So getting their perspective, adults with comorbidities, uh, vaccine-hesitant individuals. So I got a really broad scope of people throughout the population mm. in WA and what their views were, which was really eye-opening to see how the how everyone experienced the pandemic, everyone's different beliefs, concerns, fears when it came to like the vaccine. It was so new and it was it was definitely a very challenging project when you had your whole world was COVID outside of work and then your whole work was COVID and vaccines. But it was... Mm really fantastic. I got to talk to so many different groups and it was, yeah, my first introduction to research and 
it was it was really great because we also worked with the Department of Health and also with the federal government. So we had these channels of going, well, this is what people actually think on the ground, not just maybe the small things, but this is what people want to know. This is what people are seeking. And it was really great to be able to translate the research that you're doing directly to the source. You know, the government's going, mm. you really need to start listening to the people when they want certain things or different information that they're going, we don't know this. It would be great to have this information. We could actually say it. And then mm. we did eventually see some of that of going, hey, this is what they want, and then the government going, oh, yeah, maybe we should put out some things about it. And then we did see it. So it was really nice to be able to see that, which is, I think, quite rare in research to be able to like see yeah. a research really play out in real-world time. It can take decades for research to actually have any impact. So the fact you guys are getting an impact probably within weeks sometimes, right? Yeah, sometimes yeah. it was, yeah, within weeks, otherwise in the six-month periods, it was, which was really great to see. Mm. What were the um, like the general themes of beliefs in terms of vaccines that you found? Like something common between all all age groups. Trust is the biggest thing, and often it's not even trust in the vaccine, but it's trust in who is trying to promote the vaccine or mm-hmm. trying to encourage the vaccine. So, what I found with young people, trust like trust was a key theme, and it was because they trusted the state government at the time. You know, it was Mark McGowan as premier who. Let's see, a very incredibly popular leader, and they're going, well, you know, he tells the truth. He's saying, like, you know, he was willing to make mistakes. He was willing to go, I was wrong. And so when they were going, well, this is what, you know, we should have the vaccine, they're going, oh, well, I, I trust him as a leader doing it, then I'm more likely to have trust in the vaccine. And obviously those who are working in science fields were more likely to have the vaccine. And then trust went the other way where they go, well, you know, they're not putting the information out there. I'm not sure. Is it safe? A lot of it came down to yeah, trust and safety, which were really big components on both ends of the scale. Yep. Those that were, I trust the vaccine because it's safe, because I've been told that it's safe. And then on the other side going, well, I don't trust the vaccine because I haven't seen the information that it is safe, so I'm not going to get the vaccine. So, yeah, trust was the key to everything. It definitely, mm. and what we found in the research throughout the throughout the groups. Yeah, Okay. And I imagine that's probably consistent with other vaccine research that wasn't COVID, right? Yeah, very similar. This one did take a – it was different in terms of other vaccines, which are really established. We've had the measles vaccines for a while, polio vaccines for a while. This was a brand new vaccine, I think, for Mm. most of us in our lifetime. We've never had this be like, well, we we need to get this vaccine or that kind of push that – this is really important to have most of the time. It's just these routine scheduled vaccinations that you have. So I think people navigating that, but also parents navigating that for their children going, well, I'm happy to do it for myself because I can make that decision. But if I'm making a decision on behalf of my child, it it adds this extra pressure of like, what if I'm not making the right decision? What if I should be making that decision? We don't know. It was definitely, it was a lot easier for parents to make a decision for themselves going, yep, I'm happy to have it for myself, but giving it to their kids and then varied in terms of the ages of their kids of, you know, a lot of time you think, oh, well, parents only give kids autonomy when they're 18 because they're adults. But often it was more younger ages, like 12, 13. They're going, no, no, I want I'm having this discussion with my child. I want them to I want it to come from them that they want to have it and then I'll feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah, a very interesting yeah. sort of research that way. Sounds like a great um yeah, great way of learning. Yes, as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I had really great colleagues that helped, and we all we all definitely worked some long hours together working on this project. <laughs> but it was really great. I'm very lucky for yeah. the mentorship that I got. I'm assuming it was a very qualitative project. Very yeah. qualitative yeah. project. Mm. Interesting. 
And were you doing an honours thesis around this time as well? Yeah, so I was doing my honours thesis midway through 2020 to 2021 and mine was, yeah, young people aged, yeah, 18 to 29 was my group. So that was, it was a good introduction to research. It was my way of going, I've been interested in research, I want to kind of test the waters and often honours, it's... It's either you really enjoy it and you want to keep going or you go, I never want to do this ever again. I hated every moment of it. And I, I really enjoyed it. Of course, like, you know, the last bit, the push towards the end of oh, yeah. handing in your thesis. I didn't Painful. want to I didn't want to look at it ever again. And once I submitted, I'm like, that's fine, that's done. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the whole process of writing. And I was very lucky that I could help with writing the interview schedule and all the data analysis I could do myself, and I got a lot of uh, freedom, which was fantastic, which was amazing. It was mm. a really great way to start research. But I'm a definitely I'm a qualitative researcher. That is definitely what I feel most comfortable with. Okay, and was that honest thesis? I may, I may have missed this. You may have said it. What was the topic of that? Uh, young people. So it was still uh, attitudes and beliefs towards COVID nineteen vaccines between young people in okay. Western Australia. So it's like a subgroup of your. Yeah. So we had a lot of we had the overall. Coronavax, which was all about the attitudes and beliefs, and then there were subgroups of we had older people, adults with comorbidities, vaccine hesitant, parents, uh, young people. I may have already said that, but yeah, we had a yeah. whole whole number of okay. different groups. Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, side question: Have you done your honours? Did you do honours? I did honours when yes. I was uh, finishing my law degree. Yeah. So in my oh. final year, you can choose. I think you could choose to to use two electives to do honours if you had sufficient score. So yeah, I spent. Um, yeah, most yeah. of my final year uh, yeah. writing an honours thesis. Yep, yep, yeah. okay, um, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. I think honours was the worst thesis by far for me. <laughs> it, was it was the most stressful. It was really like PhD stressful. is easier. There's just so much up. more time. Yeah, it's a lot. Whereas honours, it was. Yeah, yeah no, honours honours was rough. The time pressure. Yeah, time I, pressure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit embarrassed to say that I took a, a week of annual leave so I could write my honours thesis. Yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, that's very fair enough. Because yeah. I thought it was yeah. a year and then it wasn't actually a year. It's a bit less than that. So trying it to is. get like where the deadline is and I mm. I was like, oh, yeah. I've got plenty of time. All of a sudden I was like, I don't, I don't have plenty of time. This is uh, yeah. quite a lot of work. Yeah, I think I got lucky with mine and I like I followed this through with all theses that I've done. Um, I made sure I had my proposal done on day one. So I oh, did like good. the three months beforehand, just meeting everyone while I was doing other uni stuff. And I don't know if I would have gotten through honours if I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've supervised one honours student so far and it was very much last minute. It's like, yeah, it's if, you, if you give me time, I can give you feedback and you'll do a good thesis and it'll be great. And then they give you two days. But if you, if you're, <laughs> yeah, if you're asking for feedback two days before it's due, that's going to be pretty tough. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So no, that's yeah. a lesson to all you honest students out there. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's the, also the hardest one. So It is hard because oh, you, yeah. you really don't know anything at that stage. Yeah. yeah. yeah Even yeah. though you might think you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you have to units on top of that. I found yeah. that quite challenging because some of the units were, I mean, fantastic, but... It's tough. Uh, yeah, a lot of work. I was like, I yeah. just thought I was writing a thesis, not... Doing all these other classes yeah. and writing a thesis is so much. But yeah, yeah. Not totally studying for exams at the same time. Yeah, yeah yes. it's pretty hard work. Mm-hmm. 
So we are going to talk about your PhD, but we should probably mm. need to talk about where your interest in your PhD topic came from, because I understand you've had some overseas experience and whatnot. Yes. Do you want to tell us about, it, about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I went overseas for exchange. I did the very classic, oh, I'm only going to go for six months exchange. It'll be great. It turned out to be two years, which I'm not sure how my parents felt about it, but <laughs> I think they were just happy I was exploring the world. So I was 19 and I, I just turned 19 and I moved to Amsterdam and I lived there for a year. And then I moved to Poland and I was at the University of Warsaw. And as part of my exchanges, I got to pick some units and there was a unit in the University of Warsaw all about drug policy. I picked it because I thought, oh, it's, it's a course in English. There weren't that many of them sounded interesting, vaguely related to political science. So I was like, oh, I'll, why not? I'll give it a shot. And it ended up being probably the most influential unit I I did because it was – I hadn't had a topic that just grasped my interest as much as it did. I had a really fantastic teacher and what the unit did was go through the history of different drug policies in many different countries, learnt that how it was established and the comparisons. And we all have these really great class discussions which – if you've ever done class discussions, sometimes it can be really great and there's lots of talking and conversation. Other times it's two people talking and there's nothing. But I was really lucky the class I had was full of international students. So we had all these different perspectives learning about drug policies. And sometimes it was illicit drugs. Sometimes it was medicinal drugs that have recently become legalized. And it just sparked my interest on why this policy has come to be. What was the history of how we've got this policy to where it is now? And I've just, I always had an interest after that. So then throughout the years when I've done, when I was doing journalism and I was doing my vaccine work, I was always very interested in that stuff. But I always had this really long interest in drug policy. So then when I was thinking about doing my PhD, I definitely didn't want to do any COVID research. I had had done enough. I don't think I ever want to look at COVID research ever again. I'd had my time. So I thought, no, now's the time to actually look into drug policy and actually follow something I've had this consistent interest in for many, many years. And then I started talking to people in population health going, I'm interested in drug policies. How can I kind of create my PhD from that idea? So at the moment, and because I'm six months in, so I'm assuming that my PhD will probably change quite a bit. But at the moment, <laughs> it's um, I'm focusing on medicinal cannabis and understanding its impacts on quality of life and clinical outcomes on people with anxiety disorders. So I got to kind of get my interest in learning about medicinal cannabis, how that policy has come to be, and now learning it from a different perspective, which I'm yeah, really excited about. Mm. So we'll talk about your projects a little bit more, but I was just curious to get your reflections on how the poli- drug policies work around the world. We sort of had a brief chat about this before we started recording, but, yeah, what are your observations about some of those places that you that you are in and people that you'd mix with there? Well, it was interesting. I'm living in a place like Amsterdam, Netherlands, where obviously cannabis is legal and a lot of other drugs are legal. And it's it it was interesting living there and then going to Poland, where it's very much the opposite. There are very, very strict drug laws. Not that it ever used to be. It was actually during the communist era, they actually had one of the more relaxed drug policy laws across the world. It was if people have were caught with lots of drugs, it was seen as a health problem. They're often taken to rehab. However, when the fall of communism, they actually, through their agreements with the United States, actually had a much more hardline policy. So I kind of got to see when living in those two countries, the differences in how drugs were talked about, what was 
a person addicted to drugs, what was it viewed like in terms of how the government perceived it? And I always found it very interesting living in the Netherlands. You know, you're, you're 19, you ask the Dutch students, like, oh, you know, you, it's always been available. And they just go, yep. And people weren't really having it. You would think, I always thought that Dutch people would everyone be smoking cannabis and it was everywhere. But really, I, I really struggled to think of many Dutch people I knew who did it. It was just something, oh, it's an option if mm. it's there. But often it wasn't like that. Whereas Poland, it was a lot more secretive. And I... I think there was probably probably more drug use that was happening in Poland compared to the mm-hmm. Netherlands. And then through that unit, I learned about things like Russia's drug policy, which is still incredibly, incredibly tight and very, yeah, their punishments when it comes to penalties like that. And they actually have one of the highest rates of HIV in the world, which comes from drug needle sharing. Yeah. And then they're comparing it to things like in Portugal where and obviously that was a big course of discussion in that unit as uh, Portugal decriminalised drugs. And it was this big experiment. Was it going to reduce drug use? What was it going to look like for society? Obviously there were a lot of concerns that it was going to lead to complete anarchy. <laughs> and it ended up, and what I think the biggest takeaway I learned from something like this, which is obviously decriminalisation of drugs, very different to Australia's policy, was that it was very successful and it still is a very successful policy in terms of the rates. I think it was within seven years the drug like a usage rate was down by like 50% or over. It was a huge decrease of people using drugs because there wasn't that oh, temptation, oh, it's, you know, it's not allowed, which that kind of excitement factor when people were caught with lots of drugs and they were going, okay, well, you have two options. You either go for rehab and, you know, we... We help, we help you, or you know, you've got the choice to go to prison. You you have the choice, and then when people did get help, then people weren't as addicted to drugs. And I think learning it. I think I was twenty when I was learning. I was like, it was such an eye opening thing. Of there is a policy that's so different, and it seems to be very successful. And then learning about other countries and different nuances between different countries' policies and whether you treat. And it, I think it's especially a lot of the drugs seem to focus around. Is it helping people and what do we do? How do we treat people who are addicted to drugs? And then mm. whether it's more the criminalization route or more the health route, the outcomes of it, I think, was just really fascinating. I think that's what really got my interest in mm. in, in the policy side of things. So why do you think – I think this is something that's always confused me – is why do you think the, um, the rate of drug use decreases – when you decriminalise it? Because it can't purely just be it's not exciting anymore in bunny years. Yeah, bunny years. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, that's when, well, hopefully I'll learn more yeah. about it yeah. in the process, but I think there's a part of it where when people have access to drugs and they can use it and also if they realise maybe they are overusing it, there's more access to health treatments where they mm. can go, actually, maybe this is not something that I want to keep doing, it's not good for my health, and there's more avenues to get help. Mm. And I think that's really important, especially it also depends on what drug people are people are using, the differences mm. there. Yeah, I've done a bit of work in this area in you know a previous life before I um, came and studied at UWA. And I think from what I can tell, um, the very fact that drug use is a, is a crime here like possession of drugs and you know illicit drugs is a crime, means that those people the default is to go to prison if yeah. they get caught. Now we there are some um, 
There is some flexibility in our laws where the police can use their discretion to divert people to programs and or not like substance use programs. But the, the majority of people in prison that are there for drug offences is usually fairly low level offending, yeah. um, usually to support a drug habit, whether it's stealing drugs or property crime or whatever. Yeah. So the minute you say, right, drug use and purely possessing drugs for personal use is not a crime anymore, you open up a whole different avenue for them to go down. And for many people who go down that avenue, the result is that they stop taking drugs. Um, even if you said half of those people you know, successfully mm-hmm. get rehabilitated and stop using. Whereas before, if they go into prison, a number of them will stop using whilst they're in prison, but as soon as they get out again without mm-hmm. any support, they go back to using. So really it's just about it's the access of support and making yeah. it kind of seem like it's... Destigmatizing yeah, it as well. Yeah, destigmatizing. That's yeah. what I was looking for. Yeah. So that that's a big thing, and there's been plenty of reviews recently in the methamphetamine space mm-hmm. about how can we do it better because we're just clogging up our prisons with people who have methamphetamine problems, and it's like, well, and, yeah, and, and we've spoken is. to the, the community, <laughs> and they basically say it's the waiting lists to get any help that's the problem because someone who's got in, mm-hmm. deep in the you know deep in the life at that mm-hmm. point. They need help right now, and they're told it's going to be six weeks or eight weeks. Come back in eight weeks, and we'll put yeah, you on the list. <gasps> they're just going to go back out onto the street and do the same thing again. Yeah. So, that's been the issue: is a lack of options, yeah. and so decriminalises it, like removes the prison as a as a real viable option, yeah, and, and puts, it allows more options to kind of bloom I think so. as well. The yeah, funding okay. hopefully flows to other areas rather than yeah. more funding to lock people more people up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that would be my observation anyway. Mm. But, no, uh, but in Australia, I feel like we're dragging our feet as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> we're strange uh, yes. in that way because we have some things where where other countries have, have probably updated their policies, but we're one of the first countries to allow like, psilocybin for things like post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. disorder. Yeah. And, uh, major depression, I think, maybe might be major in Major depression. Well. Yeah. So it's, and we're one of the first countries in the world to do that. So it's really interesting that we have some things we are the first in the world to, or one of yeah. the first in the world to try something like this and then other things not as much. So it's, yeah, I've, I've always been yeah. puzzled a bit with Australia that yeah. way. Yeah, look, it's, I think there is a very, there's a kind of a small but dedicated advocacy group that are, and some of them are quite high profile, prominent people who've had their own mental health issues and mm-hmm. have found alternative therapies work way better than stuff like benzos, benzodiazepines and, you know, pain medication and stuff like that. And they've been on at the government saying, you need to at least allow this stuff to be used on a trial basis to see if we can do some research to see if stuff like psilocybin and magic mushrooms and MDMA or ecstasy works. And ketamine is another one that is being prescribed for major depression where antidepressant medications, even in high doses, haven't worked for people and have actually made them worse. And then they've had a short course of ketamine and bang, it's, you know, kind of straightened them out. So... And that work still needs to be done, like yeah. on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, it means an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. I'd it's... have to read more about it. I know I've got personal views, but uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's an interesting one for. So for it has been used. Yeah. It has been used in in uh, limited um, yeah. settings yeah. by by psychiatrists um, on, on, under very controlled conditions. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so <laughs> same with MDMA. It's yep. it's only used in a controlled environment with the right therapists and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, anyway, that sort of brings us full circle, Leah, back mm. to your, the topic mm-hmm. of your PhD, medicinal yes. cannabis. Yeah. So you've you've just sort of scratched the surface so far. What can you tell us so far that, that you know? Medicinal cannabis is 
is a topic that we really haven't had that much research into. So because many uh, countries around the world prohibited cannabis use, research was really prohibited. So in America, for instance, they would go, they often their ethics boards would go, yes, you can do that research, but you can't grow the cannabis, you can't get access to the cannabis. So they couldn't really do the testing because there were issues with if you're trying to get it from often had to be overseas trying to import it in the research just wasn't happening and it was only really in the 80s we just started to research its medicinal purposes and it's been Mm -hmm. something that i mean cannabis has been used medicinally since bc eras like in Mm -hmm. china it's been used for it's been used throughout the world starting it seems like it's just started in china around southeast asia for a range of different conditions. So it's not a new thing. Mm. I, th- I think at the moment you hear a lot of things like, oh, it's it's really new, it's, it's amazing what it's doing, but it's got a very, very long history. And what we've learned is... As we've started to do the research, we, there's quite a lot of evidence suggests that medicinal cannabis is really effective for chronic pain. It's uh, quite supported in palliative care management, in cancer pain management. The biggest thing that has come up is... Is it effective for mental health? So whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety disorders, that's when the evidence is is really not clear. And there's and the biggest limitation as the many, many studies I have read is more research needs to be done. We haven't had these huge big trials understanding it. It's been a lot of reviews, really small scale things and a big difference is people's personal views going, I think it is really working, but then actually testing, is it working? We still don't know. It's this real gap in the literature and not just, and for me what I'm interested in is not just whether symptoms are improving, but is their quality of life improving? Because as we know, as we've touched on with different policies, even though medicinal cannabis is obviously legal in Western Australia, if you work on a mine site and you have a legal prescription for medicinal cannabis, you get drug tested, well, you can't work. So that means you mm-hmm. have to stop taking that medication, even though it is legal. Mm. Similar things are happening around the country when it comes to uh, drug tests when you're driving a car. You can have the prescription. You can go, it's not affecting my cognitive abilities. But if you get tested, well, you're still fine. So mm. our policies haven't, some of our policies haven't caught up when it comes to that. So even though it is legal, you can still get caught out and we know that it's becoming more popular as the laws have relaxed quite a lot. So in WA, it was 2019 when it really relaxed and we were more in line with the other states. So prior to that, it was only specialists could prescribe, only a set number of conditions, and often they were the palliative care, cancer pain. Whereas now it's like, well, GPs, if they are registered, can prescribe it. It's more conditions. I mean, and now you have things like telehealth doctors where you can you you hear stories of especially in uh, over the eastern state, you can get a telehealth appointment with the doctor, say, oh, you know, I'm, I've had a headaches and I've tried Panadol and it's not working. They go, okay, great, well, here's a prescription for medicinal cannabis. There you go. And you can get access to it. And often it's the THC, so it's the flower, and whether people are misusing it for other purposes, more recreational purposes, it's we are starting to see that is happening, but more and more people are wanting it and more and more people, especially for mental health, are looking at using it. And mm-hmm. it is predicted that anxiety will be the most common condition that it's going to be prescribed for in the coming years. At the moment, it's chronic pain, but and mm-hmm. chronic pain's conditions are going down in terms of wanting people wanting prescriptions for it. Anxiety is going up, but we just don't know if it is effective. We don't know if CBD mm. is more effective or THC is a combination how you take it, 
we don't know. So this is kind of yeah. what I my PhD is hoping to address and hoping to understand a bit more about its effectiveness. Because if more people are wanting it, you want to make sure that it is actually helping people. Yeah, medicinally. And I, yeah. I think as with a lot of drugs, like even alcohol and other substances, um, it's quite subjective based on the individual because individuals... I've spoken to a range of people who have had different experiences with cannabis ranging from couldn't stand it and would never go near mm. it again after trying it once to they swear by it and, you know, yeah. even for the same health problems, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it could be it's, – it's an interesting one and I, I think knowing how you can predict or work out who it's going to work for and who it's not going to work for and then to go to another level of complexity, what dose and what type, you know, that's where the research, I think – that you're doing is going to be really important. Do you, do you know if there are any clinical trials happening at the moment? Um, there, I think there are a few that are happening in the eastern states. I think it was one of the universities in Queensland working with a few hospitals there that were testing it for, I believe, I believe it was chronic pain, but don't quote mm-hmm. me on it. They, mm-hmm. There are a few, but a lot of it's waiting for results at the moment. Yep. It's just mm-hmm. it's just starting to really, because now it is a lot more accessible to be able to do the research and people are able to get funding for it because, again, even when it was legalised and able to research, trying to get the funding to do it, it was often like, oh, we don't we don't really want to fund that. So it is slowly happening, but I haven't seen anything yet for mental health conditions and understanding that part. Mm. We actually had a guest on last year or the year before yeah. from Curtin University. I feel like his name was Marco Falasca or something. I'll have to go back and I'll put yeah. a link in the show the notes. The obesity one, right? Yeah, so he yeah. was looking at it for it. They're developing a treatment <laughs> for obesity, but prior to that, he was looking at pancreatic cancer, yep. which oh, has a yeah. basically a survival rate of ten percent. So if you get it, you're going to die pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And he and he found that they'd done a little bit of research to find that people who had taken cannabis, presumably recreationally, had a, a better chance of surviving. Apparently, wow. and they don't know what the mechanism is or, or how or why, but. Obviously, there's more work going into that, but this sort of stuff can only be found out if we, if yeah. we're curious enough to investigate it. We and allow so, for the research to occur. Yeah, yeah. so a big thing. And cannabis is a is a tough one from a policy point of view because you do have that pollution of recreational use, kind of overshadowing the the serious medical debate that we're having about it. And if you speak yeah. to GPs that are serious about prescribing cannabis and trying to work out the right dose, etc. I think that's one of their frustrations is that yeah. a lot of the patients that go to clinics, you know, looking for cannabis are looking for a recreational yep. <laughs> cannabis, you know. <laughs> I uh, think there's also that difference in price though. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I would assume that over time the price of um, prescribed THC will decrease, but I have heard it is just huge. It can so, be. Yeah. yeah. Huge, and huge I think cost. it depends which clinic you go through as well. Oh, okay. Because some clinics yeah, will right. charge a fortune for their consultation. Yeah. And it's not covered by PBS, the cannabis yeah. product. So it is pretty expensive compared to other medications that you would pay for. Mm. Um, but, yes, there are other clinics who, like you say, do a telehealth appointment. Yeah. That might be 75 bucks. 
and then the next thing yeah, you get right. a prescription and that's, you know, you're just paying for the cost of the cannabis then. Yeah. And then whether it's the THC variety or the CBD variety, because yeah. mm-hmm. uh, part of the research we're talking to uh, someone who works at a clinic and was saying about the difference in the milligram amounts where often you only need five to 10 milligrams. That's what they prescribe mm. in terms of symptom management. Whereas if it's in a flower, it's more like 250 to 500 milligrams so it's a huge huge difference in terms of the strength the strengths yeah Mm. and the other complicating factor is that people can grow their own and it's essentially the same product i know that there's going to be different strains and whatnot but if you have the seeds to grow a certain strain then you'll be going to be growing the same strain as what you're getting out of the dispensary so yeah it's a it's an interesting one policy wise policy wise it's working out how to navigate obviously we've there's been a number of across parliaments across Australia. The Legalised Cannabis Party has come in and obviously they're advocating for both uh, more medicinal purposes and research and they have policies around that, also updating its drug laws. They were petitioning, I think it was in Victoria, to for it to update the uh, drug testing for driving if you have the medicinal policy. So they're mm. advocating that. But also they are advocating to legalise it also for recreational use, which obviously mm. with America, many states in America have legalised it. And many countries around the world have now legalised it. So there's definitely – it's all being conflated at the moment and whether it it will be interesting to see whether Australia does legalise it recreationally. Obviously, we've made it a lot more accessible now medicinally, but also it's really important that if we're doing it medicinally that we know the information. Yeah, I agree. And I I just think drug policy-wise, we've – across the world, we've tried prohibition – like yes. including for alcohol in different countries at times, like America. And it seems pretty clear to me that all you do is funnel people into the justice system when you when you ban stuff and make it a criminal offence. Yeah. And so I sort of believe more in a, in a harm minimisation approach. So allow people to do their own research and give them the support and trust them to make their own choices, essentially. And if they get in a bit of a spot of bother, make it easy for them to get help to get out of that, you know, um, rather than just locking them up. <laughs> That's my rant. My <laughs> um, but I yeah. think we all have our own version of that rant. <laughs> I think so. And look, and people who've maybe been the victims of crime where someone mm, was drug affected and, and, and inflicted some sort of pain on them might have a different view and I, and yeah. I get that as well. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, it is about learning though. So, you know, personal experience, um, you know, when I was 18, 19, I was very against drugs, like mm. completely and utterly. Um, but now... Uh, you know, I work in that space. I know more about harm minimisation. I know more about kind of drug use and the harms um, associated with it and that, you know, at some point it's no longer a choice for the person and, mm. and that kind of thing. Um, it really opens your eyes as to it's it's a health problem. It's yeah. not a crime. And I think when you dig into the reasons that people use, if you heard some of their stories and their experiences, Absolutely. you would be pretty hard pushed to say that they were in the wrong yeah, for so wanting to escape from <laughs> yeah. whatever their situation is. Yeah, and yeah. It's, yeah, it's sad. I used to, when I was a journalist, I did court reporting and I remember going to Fremantle courts and I would sit there and you know, obviously you're trying to find stories. Just the amount of people that came in that were addicted to drugs and there was drug offences and you looked at these people and you just... It, it was really disheartening. I you know, would spend many days there and... <clears throat> I think that's when it really hit home of like this is a this really is a health problem like these people are especially when they're trying to talk to the magistrates the many of them got so emotional going I'm just 
it's just got such a grasp on them that mm. they want to get better. But they, again, as you mentioned about the services, they just can't get the get the help, and it's just it's so strong. And particular, well, meth was the biggest mm. biggest one that you saw down in um in the lo- local courts. You yeah. you saw a, saw a lot, and then saw people coming into court who were on the drug quite mm. often as well. Yeah. And it was yeah, seeing that firsthand was. Yeah, help. Yeah. yeah, again, I think it probably also made me more interested in drug policy of going. It's just, it's such, it's something that is on the streets. It's everywhere you go. It's not something where you can just bury your head in the sand and go, oh, well, no, this isn't, this isn't happening. Yeah. It, it is happening it no is matter something. what policies you do, whether it's prohibition or not. Drugs are out there. People are using them. And when people get addicted to them, how are we going to help these people? Yeah, that's it. And look, the, the data from, from, prison surveys that they do sort of every three years across Australia shows that methamphetamines now overtaking cannabis as the most prevalent wow. drug in that population. And, yeah, essentially I think you'd find that it's, the cannabis use is probably not causing too many issues, but the meth does. One, because it's very expensive. Two, because people's state of mind really does change quite a lot, particularly if they're heavy users. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation and... Yeah, it's a difficult one to unpack, Mm. Um, but everyone's got a view. Yeah, so so with your project then... um, are you going to be interviewing people about their perspectives and on mental health and um, uh, cannabis, or like, what's the what's the main aim of your project? My main aim is to see. I'm. Well, I will be. Yeah, to answer your question, yes, I will be interviewing yeah. people. <laughs> cool. um, but I will be trying to understand their experience in terms of. I'm following. I'm hoping to follow a group of people who are beginning their medicinal cannabis treatment, okay. and understand from their perspectives and. and they get to kind of drive in terms of their quality of life. Has it changed? Has it not changed? What aspects? And try to understand, is this medi- is this medication working and how does it affect people in their symptomology but also their overall quality of life? So I'll be asking questions about that and then also understanding if they have had prior recreational medicinal cannabis use or prior unregulated cannabis use for for their conditions as well, understanding if there are, are any differences between that, because again, that is a part of the research we we have no idea. There seems to be this real gap of understanding in the literature that people have been using unregulated cannabis to treat their their medicinal problems for medicinally. It's I mean, there were stories of someone getting someone in a palliative care facility where police came in because they were using cannabis, unregulated cannabis, and uh, they did end up getting fined, but then they they passed away before they could get the court date, and then obviously the court threw it out going, I mean, what's... Why, why are you bringing this why, to court? Why are you bringing this? It probably should never should have happened. So, mm. yeah, my research is focusing on that, but I will also be talking to GPs, and that's probably when I'll mm. be more asking them about their perspectives, because I'm hoping to talk to GPs that do prescribe and GPs that don't prescribe, and to understand for GPs that do prescribe, what led you to it, why are you doing it, what's the process what's their observations from this experience, but then also talking to GPs who don't prescribe and understanding, well, why don't you prescribe? What do you think about the current prescribing practices? Their understanding of it, their perspectives and understanding from from the medical side of things, their perspectives. But when it comes to 
people I'm interviewing, I'm more, I might, I think my project's more focused on is this treatment working? How does it work? Because, yeah, as you know, in the literature, it's interesting that they often have that their symptoms don't go down, but their quality of life improves. And whether <laughs> it's because they feel like they can engage more in the community because maybe they are in less pain or quite often it's they're sleeping more, which means they are feeling better, but they can still have the same symptoms. It's something that we still don't understand a whole lot of. But mm. I do think in my interviews I will definitely hear perspectives of what they think about cannabis and what they're – I'm sure that there's going to be opinions about whether it recreationally, medicinally <laughs> – I'm sure it will come up yeah. as well. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's going to be an interesting project, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, we'll see. This is now six months in, so it'll be interesting to see at the end of uh, end of the PhD <laughs> what I've ended up doing. But I'm hoping to actually stick to the plan because I'm yeah really interested in doing it. Yeah. No, I, well, I don't see any reason why, it's, yeah. why you shouldn't be able to. Yeah. yeah. Should be great. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, that probably brings us pretty close to the end, I'd say. Um, yeah. yeah, I appreciate you coming in and sharing that with us. And we'll look forward to hopefully having a future conversation to hear how it's all going yeah. or gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, exciting. Yeah, and to discuss what you found. Yeah, yeah it'll, be, it'll be exciting. I will look forward to our, like, two, three years and then listening back to this and going, oh, I wonder, I wonder how I much I did nothing of this. I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> entirely changed. Oh, wow. That's what my proposal was yeah. about. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much, Leah. Yeah, thank and, you. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll speak in the future. Yes. Cheers. Thank you. And that was Leah Roberts. Yeah, well, it sounds like a very exciting project, to be honest. Um, uh, I'm very curious about the GP perspectives of of her project, uh, particularly because, um, you know, there's, uh, and I'm sure she's aware of this, all of the potential biases you have in terms of qualitative interviews in this area. Um, You know, participants, she's probably going to get a lot of people that have recreationally used and have had positive experiences because that's how recruitment works. But in terms mm. of GPs, it's going to be a different different perspective and I think that'll be really interesting. Mm. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. I think she's planning on talking to uh, patients from particular services. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear what their uh, journey was like and what their experience was like you know, seeking treatment and if they didn't have a previous great understanding of cannabis, what that understanding is now and, you know, yeah. whether it was what they thought it was going to be or something different. Or, and what resources yeah. are available as well. Mm. I wonder if there's a pamphlet. There must be a pamphlet, right? I suspect there probably is. Because, yeah. I mean, there's, we're talking about th- tens of thousands of people across Australia now who've, yeah. who've been prescribed it. So you'd think that they would have a, a reasonable amount of information out there for mm. people to, to look at. Um, yeah. Yeah, really interesting topic and... Definitely. And obviously something that I think at least us two have opinions on. As um, you listeners probably realised as well that we definitely have opinions on it uh, because well, both of our work is kind of in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably our work probably touches on the same individuals but just in different settings. Yours in a healthcare setting and mine predominantly in a prison setting. Mm. Um, But there would definitely be some people who are in both at different times. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, that link between drugs and crime is is there, you yeah. know, and it's partly down to the fact that drugs are illegal. You know, if they weren't, perhaps maybe there wouldn't be as quite as much crime. Although a lot of crime is alcohol related, yeah. which is legal, like alcohol is legal. So 
yeah. Anyway, fascinating. Yeah. That's, that's one for another day. It we'll is, isn't it? <laughs> get, I'm sure we'll get a couple of experts on to talk about that sometime. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, where, pe- where can people find us, Courtney, if they want to get in touch? Yeah, so if you have any uh, opinions on cannabis drugs or any other health-related topic, you can contact us uh, on email, meaningofhealthatoutlook.com. You can talk to us on Twitter, at healthmeanswhat, Instagram, at, at healthmeanswhat. Yeah. yeah, I believe so. But if so. you look up Meaning of Health podcast, you'll probably find us as well. Yeah. Um, Facebook the same, right? Facebook is the same, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think no, it's just the Meaning of Health, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Meaning of Health podcast. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can Google us and you'll come up and we'll come up. Um, we don't have TikTok and we don't have threads. Yeah, I was going to say, threads has just come on and yeah. I've, I've, I'm aware of it. It's an Instagram yeah. affiliated it service. It is, it is. I, I have a personal one. Okay. Um, How are you finding it? Uh, unfiltered. <laughs> okay. So they, they're still probably building algorithms and stuff, right? To I, I would say so. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, but like the best thing about it is there's no adverts. Okay. There's no sponsored posts. There's mm. none of that. Um, and it's only because it's new that it's got none of that. Um, yeah, I'm they're sure trying to attract as many users as possible. Yeah, yeah, and honestly, that's the best bit. <laughs> do you think that Twitter's going to survive or do you think it's just going to kind of deteriorate and wither on the vine like MySpace did eventually? <laughs> well, I think that uh, Twitter will probably grow old with the current users. Okay. And I think younger users would probably go to threads. Threads, yeah. Yeah. Kind of like what's happened with Facebook, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. So not, yeah, not many younger people would use Facebook except for maybe Messenger. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it's going to be a similar thing. Hmm. Okay. Mm, Time will tell. But, yeah, get in touch and let us know what you think about threads. (laughs) Or not. We don't mind. Yeah, all right. Well, thanks very much, Courtney. Thank you. And we'll speak with you lovely listeners soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.